Well, in just a moment, we're going to hear from a guest pastor who's with us today. And if you've been at the chapel for any length of time, uh, you've heard James preach here in the past, in years past. Uh, Also, uh, some of us have uh, known him uh, a long time. I first met James Walden, and he was an undergraduate uh, at the University of Florida when he attended uh, the previous church I pastored. And getting to know him uh, as a young college student, it has been... um, a delight that I've served with him where he participated in an internship uh, with me at our church, and also um, seeing him go on to seminary and uh, closely watching as he got married, and as he and his wife Stacy had sons, Timothy, Will, excuse me, Luke, Timothy, Luke, Will, and Timothy. I do know the order of your son's birth, and they're now high school and college age. And after serving uh, for five years on our staff as an assistant pastor, uh, our church prayed and launched him and the family to move to Columbia, South Carolina to plant a church, which God uh, graciously has caused to be uh, fruitful. In fact, way back when they were purchasing uh, their building, uh, our church was able to participate in a special offering we took to kind of help with the down payment. So in some ways, we've really been uh, closely connected in in prayer uh, and in uh, fellowship. But James did speak to our men at our uh, men's retreat uh, here this uh, past weekend, Friday and Saturday. And uh, I think very highly of James. Uh, I don't want to embarrass you, but I esteem you highly in love. And one of my joys as a pastor, and not all pastors share in this to the degree of commitment that I have, But in addition to shepherding the congregation, I have always had the desire and the burden to shepherd individually young men who are preparing for pastoral ministry and kind of helping them to move into that calling. And James is one of those uh, those men. I wrote a a dissertation for my doctoral degree uh, on mentoring uh, pastors. And one of the quotes in my dissertation reads this way. It's not a long quote. The mark of a true mentor is that he rejoices when his pupil surpasses his own achievements. And I honestly feel that way about James Walton. And so uh, we're glad that you're here today, James. It's good to have renewed fellowship. And come now and open up the word for us. Now, you have the option. When Brad comes up, he always turns this light off. He just touches this. I always turn it on. You can decide whether you need it or not. Okay. Thank you. Well, good morning, everyone. It is good to see you all and to be with you all. It was a great weekend with the men at the men's retreat um, and to see even hear some other familiar faces and and some I don't know. And um, I'm glad to have the opportunity to, to perhaps meet you after the service. And Richard, I really appreciate those very kind words. Um, I don't know that I believe that that's true, that I've surpassed you, but I I humbly receive those kind words from you. Um, It was, it has been a great privilege to, throughout the course of my uh, sort of entry into pastoral ministry and throughout my life as a pastor, to have Richard as a mentor. Um, and to have his input in my life, to have his care 
for me and my family. Um, Richard has, has always not only loved me, he has loved my wife really well. He and Priscilla both. Um, in fact, one of the times when I was an intern, we were driving together, and I didn't put my seatbelt on. And Richard just sort of looked over and said, so do you want your, your children to grow up without a father? <laughs> um, anyway, those of you who know Richard say, yeah, that sounds about right. Um, but I'm very, very grateful for uh, just the ministry that Richard led and was a part of that was such a part of my life, my discipleship, and many of my friendships here was through Richard's kind leadership and his um, excellent teaching of the Word. And so with that said, would you open your Bibles with me to the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 3. We're going to be just looking at four verses, though we will be looking at the verses before and after for context. So I'd encourage you to keep your Bible open, knowing uh, Richard and Brad. I know that you're used to that, having your finger on the text. And so I'm going to read that, and then I'll pray for our time. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you have preserved through the ages by your Spirit this word. And by that same Spirit, you inspired the pen of the Apostle to write these words. And Lord, now by that same Spirit, you illuminate these words so that our hearts and minds might know and might be filled with all the riches of wisdom and knowledge that are in Christ Jesus. Lord, would you illuminate our hearts now through your Spirit? Would you meet with us, as Brad prayed, would you transform our hearts in the presence of your glory revealed in the face of Jesus Christ? In his name we pray, amen. If you've been around the church for very long, the chances are you've probably heard some of the same illustrations. There's one illustration I'm betting you've heard. It's a preacher favorite. It's a story about the author of Sherlock Holmes, Arthur Conan Doyle. Apparently, he was a bit of a, a prankster. And according to the story, he wrote an anonymous letter to a very well-respected and highly esteemed archdeacon in London. Uh, and the letter simply said, all is discovered, flee immediately. And as the story goes, the archdeacon was never heard from again. There's another version that he sent it to 12 prestigious leaders who were his friends in London. And within a week, they were all missing. Um, it's a neat story. I think it's an urban legend, but it's an old one. The urban legend goes back at least to like the 1890s. And the reason why it has sticking power, I think, is because it sounds plausible. Because we know all of us have secrets, secrets that we carry. Some of them are small secrets, but some of them are more significant. Some of them are 
or secrets we rightly keep to ourselves because they're someone else's secrets and not for us to divulge. Some of us are carrying secrets of others that we shouldn't be carrying, and it was unfair for them to ask for us to carry them. Some of, them, some of us carry family secrets. And though no one told us not to tell, we know the rule is we don't tell. Some of us carry secret sins that no one else knows about, secret addictions. Some of us carry secret wounds that we don't talk to anyone about, secret griefs. Some of us carry a secret disease that maybe only our spouse knows about, but we carry it alone. The truth is, God has secrets too. In Matthew's gospel, it's also in Luke's gospel, Jesus prays this, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding, and you have revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. You know what the Father's big secret is? His Son. And no one knows the Father except the Son. The Son's secret is the Father. And those, the Son chooses to reveal Him. And so Jesus often speaks of the secrets of the kingdom of God. He speaks in hidden parables so that others might not know. But blessed, he says to the disciples, are your eyes for your, you see and your ears for you hear. Prophets and kings long to see and hear what you are able to see and hear. These are the secret things of God. He compares the kingdom to secret things, a tiny, almost invisible piece of yeast hidden in a batch of dough, or a treasure hidden in a field. But there's a huge difference between our secrets, or most of them, and God's secrets. We hide things, more or less, because of shame. Yesterday, with those silly events we did, I had to hold a 45-pound plate and tell my fingers, you know, basically couldn't hold it anymore. And it fell on my foot. And uh, it hurt. I didn't tell anybody because it was embarrassing. And to this, this morning when I woke up, it hurt to put my shoe on. And then when I was running to catch a Frisbee, right before I was with, grabbed it, something in my hamstrings just, and I dropped the Frisbee, which everyone saw. But what they didn't see was the hamstring. And I didn't tell anybody. I told Gardner in the car because I hobbled in the truck. Because it's embarrassing. I'm, I'm getting old. We hide things because of shame. When Adam and Eve realized their transgression and God looked for them, what did they do? They hid from each other and from God out of shame. But God hides things for the very opposite reason. He hides things for glory, for his glory. The hidden gospel has now been made known for our glory and for his it is an open secret, Leslie Newbegin called the gospel. Here's how Paul puts it to the Corinthians. Among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it's not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. No, we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, 
which was decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood it. If they had, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. This hidden gospel, this hidden mystery has now been made known to all the saints. Earlier in Colossians, in chapter 1, Paul writes this, the mystery hidden for ages and generations has now been revealed to his saints. And the world, oh sorry, God shows to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. And here's the secret. Here's our big secret. Christ in you, the hope of glory. You know, the saints' lives are an open secret. They are a hidden mystery that is publicized in the open square. We are known. The lives of God's people are known and they're felt, they're heard. But the secret source of our lives remains hidden to the vast majority of those in our lives. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, after all. The salt of the earth cannot but taste salty. And as Richard prayed, the world will know that we are his disciples by our love for one another. Nevertheless, our hidden life, unseen by most of the world, unseen sometimes by our own family members, our hidden life will prove to be the most important thing about us. And what is, again, our great secret? I said earlier it was Christ in us. We could also say us in Christ. Another way to say this is our great secret, the great secret of your life and my life as believers is union with Christ. That is our great secret. And that's what Paul's talking about here in verse 1. If then you have been raised, we're jumping into the middle of an argument. And so if you'll allow me to just reconstruct the, the basics of Paul's argument here, he, he, he's just pick, picking up an if then this is true. If it's true that you've been raised, then. Well, he, he makes a similar argument or, or, or sort of condition in chapter 2, verse 20. There he says, if then, or if with Christ you died. So he's picking up on a statement he made all the way back to verse 12 of chapter 2, where he says, having been buried with him in baptism, notice the having been, not be buried, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So he's stating in 2.12, you died, you were buried, and you were raised. If then you died, then he draws out implications. And now in chapter 3, verse 1, if then you were raised, he draws out his implications. So we are in the middle of Paul expounding the great secret of our lives. That in Christ Jesus, you died. And in him, you were raised to newness of life. That is our great secret. And what are the implications of that great secret? One, you have a hidden head. Did you know that? You have a hidden head. Chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Read that with me. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Wow. 
He said it earlier in chapter 1. All the fullness was pleased to dwell in him. Was it Philip who asked, just show us the Father and that will be enough? And what did Jesus say? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. God was hidden in the Son, but not for those with eyes to see his glory. All the fullness of God was hidden in him, and as a result, all the riches and treasures of wisdom are, as Paul says in Colossians 2, 3, hidden in Christ. All the riches of divinity are there for us to share in, to enjoy. They are hidden in Christ. But not only is he God in the flesh, but verse 10, you have been filled in him. What an incredible secret you have. You have been filled with the presence and power of Almighty God in flesh, united to you in his death and resurrection. And as a result, look at this. He is the head over not just you as Lord of our lives. He's the head of all rule and authority. The head of the cosmos is your secret head. The supremacy of Christ is both something hidden in the present era, and yet it's been publicized at the cross. Jump down to verses 13 and 15 of chapter 2. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. You see, the law had, as it were, a, a, a collection of debts that we had all incurred, and the list is lengthy. I should say the list was lengthy because it's been nailed to the cross, he said. What a vivid picture. All of your debts have been crucified. God just didn't, like, erase them. He put them to violent death. He ended it once and for all. And then as a result, what does that say? Verse 10, or sorry, verse 15, he disarmed, by so doing this, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in him, or better, in it, the cross. By triumphing over these, these authorities and powers and principalities in the heavenly places, he made open shame of them. It's the idea of stripping them naked in the public square, revealing that the emperors of the world have no clothes. Why? Well, as Richard reminded us earlier this morning, Satan is the accuser of the brethren. Right? That's the old King James Version. He accuses believers. But what accusations does he have now? The record of debt's been removed. He's got no legitimate accusations against us. Zero. He has false guilt, as Richard pointed out, but no true guilt. He has no authority to condemn. And so they've been disarmed. That is our great victory. And it's made known right now to these dark powers and principalities. It's an open secret that they are aware of. This is how Paul puts it to the Ephesians, that his task as an apostle was to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery, hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church, 
the manifold wisdom of God, its complex and visible nature might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Satan knows he's been stripped, and he's angry, but it remains hidden to most of the world. Remember what Paul says, the wisdom is not of this age. None of the rulers of this age have understood it. There will come a day when what still is hidden will no longer be hidden. There will come a day when every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. But I'm getting ahead of myself. We need to, not only does Christ's supremacy and his, his victory over these principalities and powers a secret, here's another secret that follows. Because you are in him, you have victory over the rulers and authorities. They are under your feet as you sit on the throne with Christ. That's why Paul says that we crush Satan under our feet. He, is, he has been humiliated and placed beneath us, these powers and principalities. And as a result, you and I stand in a position of great authority before the throne of God. We sang it just now. No tongue can bid me thence to depart. In chapter 1, verses 21 through 22, Paul writes this, Once you were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, and he has now reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. That is your great secret. This is your status before the throne of God, holy, blameless, above reproach. It's who you really are. Or as he says earlier in chapter 1, the Father has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints. He has delivered you from the domain of darkness and transferred you to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. Does that mean we have a double life? We sort of have our sainthood in heaven and we sort of live in sin on earth? Not quite. In fact, this secret is what enables us to truly change here on earth. Right before our opening verse, chapter 3, verse 1, notice what the previous verse says, chapter 2, verse 23. Paul writes, these, speaking of all the religious rules that were being pushed upon some of the believers in this region of Asia Minor, these indeed have an appearance of wisdom in the promoting of self-willed religion and false humility and severity to the body, but they are of no value in suppressing the indulgence of the flesh. No, Paul says, now I'm going to show you a better way. It's not through these, these man-made rules of discipline that look impressive. They look very religious. It's a religion of try harder, do better. It's impressive to us. And Paul says, don't be impressed. Be impressed with Christ. Look to him. 
Here's what you need to do. You need to set your, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand in his triumph, in his victory, in his session is what it's called, his seating as a conquering king. That's where you need to focus your mind, to, to seek, set your mind on things that are above, not on the earth. What are the things above we're supposed to set our minds on? God doesn't reveal a whole lot about the details of heaven to us. But that's okay. We don't need to focus on speculation. We know exactly what to set our minds on. In fact, we know by virtue of what he contrasts it with. Set your minds on things above, not things on the earth. Well, what are the things? So I shouldn't set my mind on my mortgage or my car payments. I can just forget all that. Is that what you're saying, Paul? No. What does he mean by the things on earth? Well, he tells us in verse 5. Put to death, therefore, my translation says what is earthly in you, but you know what it literally says? Put to death those parts that are upon the earth. That are upon the earth. The same exact phrase. And then he goes on to define them for us. Sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil, desire, and covetousness or greed, which is idolatry. These are the things on the earth. And, and, and we are to put them off of us, is what he goes on to talk about, putting off these things. Um, we're to put off uh, in verse, uh, to, we'll put to death in verse 5, but now uh, he says, verse 8, now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouths. Don't lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new. But this is how Paul expresses it in Romans 8. Set the mind set on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. To set the things above is to see, set our minds on the things of Christ's spirit. One commentator summarizes it this way, and I think he's right. He says, the command to aspire to the things of heaven is a command to meditate and dwell upon Christ's sort of life. And on the fact that he is now enthroned as Lord of the world. And that that's becomes clear as we see what Paul repeatedly calls us to put on. If we're to put off the things of the earth, then we're to put on the things above. And what are those things he calls us to put on? Well, look at verses 12 through 14 of chapter 3. He tells us, Put on then... As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect harmony. These are the things above. They are the characteristics of Christ himself. Of our conquering king. Who conquered through meekness and patience and gentleness and kindness. Who instead of retaliating forgave. These are the things we are to set our minds on. The character of Christ and all of his moral beauty and excellence as well as our experience of Christ, which is all grace, 
We've experienced his compassionate heart. We've experienced his patience. We've experienced his mercy. Notice what he says again in verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones. You were chosen. The Son chose to reveal the secret of the Father to you because the Father chose you in the Son. God set his eyes on you. From that incredible experience, as we meditate on it, we live our lives as chosen ones, unworthy but beloved, loved, holy, made holy in Christ. Likewise, he says in verse 13, as you have been forgiven, so also forgive. We have experienced incredible forgiveness of our sins. Every day his mercies are new, refreshing us with new forgiveness of sins. And out of that experience of meditating on confessing our sins and experiencing God's washing and cleansing, we ourselves are setting our minds on things above and we will find ourselves changed. In fact, one of the things that really leads us to is gratitude. Gratitude becomes the barometer of whether or not we're setting our minds on things above. And I say this as a man who's generally ungrateful. Gratitude is not my strong suit. I expect things to work, and when they don't, I'm annoyed. <laughs> I expect convenience. I expect timeliness and efficiency. When it's not that way, I'm irritated. I'm rarely grateful, and wow, is that a barometer for the state of my soul. Look what Paul, Paul says about this. This is all of it summarized. Like, How do you do this? Verse 16 of chapter 3. I think this is a, this is a great key to understanding how we can practically do this. Let the word of Christ, let the gospel, all of Scripture as it points to Jesus and his majesty, his excellence, his glory, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. How does a word dwell richly? It means it's like overflowing, it's abundant, it's an embarrassment of riches in you. Let it dwell richly, not a little bit. Don't just memorize it, savor it, meditate on it, chew on it. Let it turn into worship, as he goes on to say, as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and singing and psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. You sing psalms from the Old Testament, new hymns that have been penned by the saints, and you just break out into random spiritual songs, spontaneous singing. It's like a musical. <laughs> and then notice this, with thankfulness in your hearts. And then he, he's so repetitive. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. In chapter 2, verse 7, he says, continue in Christ, abounding in thanksgiving. When he prays for the church, church in chapter 1, he says, I pray that you will be filled with thanksgiving. This is the hallmark that we are setting our minds on things above. But I want to get more specific. How do we actually do this? How do we seek things above? How do we set our minds on them? And one thing is, uh, as, he, as he goes on to say in verse 3, for you have died, he reminds us we have died. We need to remember that. We need to remember our old self has died. And that's sometimes difficult to remember. We need to remember what we read in verse 11, that the, that the body of flesh has been put off from us. Or as he says in verse 9, seeing that you have put off the old self, chapter 3, verse 9. It's the done deal. It's been put away. The old sinful man or woman 
is dead and buried. And I know what you're thinking. You're like, funny, you should tell him that. Because that doesn't seem to always match up to my experience, right? Which is why we have to keep remembering it. We have to keep remembering what happened at the cross. Paul puts it this way in Romans, we know that our old man was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so we would no longer be slaves to sin. And what does Paul then command us to do? You also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God. We have to keep reckoning this. Going back to the cross, meditating on the cross. And there, I didn't, it wasn't just the Son of God by himself crucified. There was I. The secret he carried in his chest was I was there with him. In Christ, my sins, my history was crucified. We also die to our self-attempts at fighting sin. We die to old religion, which is self-effort. It's try harder, do better, right? So chapter 2, verse 20, we already referenced this in 23, but, and I know this is a lot of text. You guys are being very patient. Chapter 2, verse 20, if with Christ you died to the elementary principles of the world, why as if you were still alive in the world do you submit to regulations? Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch, referring to things that all perish as they're used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom and promoting self-willed religion and false humility and severity of the body, but they have no value in your battle against the flesh. They have no lasting value. But we died to those self-efforts, and instead we make, we make a different kind of effort, an effort to remember and an effort to meditate on our hidden life in Christ. Listen, a hidden life takes energy. If, if you and I have secrets we're hiding or we're keeping, there's an amount of energy we have to attend to, hide, to keeping those things hidden. Right? There's an energy that goes to that. Uh, we have to carefully attend to protect and cultivate sort of that protection and maybe even disavow it when, if someone asks. And you know what? In, in those darker secrets that we sometimes carry, there's an enemy. It's the world, the flesh, and the devil conspire to whisper and say, this dark secret, it's who you really are. This is who you are. And I want you to know that that is a lie. It is the lie of shame, which the enemy uses. It's false guilt that the enemy uses to tell us this is who you really are. Yes, indeed, we must come out of the light, come into the light, if we say we have fellowship with Christ, yet we walk in darkness, we don't practice the truth. We're not living according to the truth. There is a hypocrisy there. But if we step out into the light, John writes, we have fellowship with each other. We stop keeping secrets. We start to open up secrets. And the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all guilt, from all sin. And so, as Paul writes there, here in 3, 8, we are to put these all away, these sins that maybe we're cultivating or we're protecting. We must put them away, seeing that we have 
the old, the old self has been crucified or put off with its practices, and we have put on the new self. And remembering this, remembering this, the gospel tells us this, as we experience fresh forgiveness, fresh cleansing, and reassurance in the presence of God through Jesus, the gospel says, I should say, Jesus says to us, this is the real you. This is who I have redeemed. This is who I have secured before the throne of God. This is who you really are. You are qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints for the simple fact that the Father has qualified you. You have been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred or transformed into the kingdom of his beloved Son. The sheer truth being that the Father has done this in the Son. So, we must attend rather our hidden life. During my sabbatical this summer, I read, I read through all four Gospels in a kind of harmony of the four Gospels. And there were many things I learned in that, but one of the things that struck me is that the secret of Jesus' ministry, he had a secret to his, his magnificent ministry, and the secret to it, it struck me, was this, his intimacy with the Father. Joel and I were talking about this. Remember when, when the disciples came and said, Master, we got you food. He's like, cool, I've got food you don't know about. You have secret, he has secret snacks, you know. His secret food is to do the will of his Father. He delights in it. He feasts on it. When he was healing people and his disciples wanted to set up a healing shop, right? They were like, this is great. So many people are coming. Jesus just disappeared in the wilderness to go pray. Like, this is not how you build a successful ministry, Jesus, you know? What are you doing out in the wilderness? Well, that's his secret. He was meeting with his father. And he taught us to do the same thing. When you give to the needy, Jesus says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing so that your giving may be in secret. And the Father who sees in secret will reward you. When you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. In other words, how are you cultivating your interior life? What do you do in those rare moments when you have time all to yourself? What do you do when no one else is watching? Do we cultivate the secret intimacy with the Father? Do we set our minds on those things? Do we enjoy and savor them? Find rest in them? Listen, the most determining factor in our lives right now will be what it is we do when no one else is looking and what we are cultivating in our interior lives. But the truth remains this, the most important thing about you is this secret. Verse 3 and 4, you have died, your life is hidden with Christ in God. 
when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. On that day, when Christ appears, all the secrets of the world will be exposed. You and I also be revealed, but we will not be found naked. We will be found clothed in his glory. Not because we finally figured it out. Not because we tried hard, did better, and finally succeeded. Not because we finally got our act together. But because the Son chose to make known to you the secret. And so, I invite us all to come and hide ourselves in him. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for this wonderful secret you have kept hidden for generations, but you have now made known to the likes of us, and that it is our secret now that we share, an open secret that we invite others into. Lord, may we come and hide ourselves in you, and in that interior place, may we find great strength, great life, great joy, and renewal. And may the world know, because of our secret,